Well, good morning. Welcome to worship with us this morning. And uh, whether you're online or you are actually with us in the building, you're very welcome. It's great to, uh, to see you. Over the next few weeks, um, we hope to have some studies on growing young. Growing young is the, the process that we've been talking about over the last few uh, weeks, uh, maybe even slightly longer than that, uh, in church. And it's research that was carried out uh, on congregations that were um, growing young. Their average age was coming down, whereas normally uh, in, in America, uh, where, it was, uh, where the research was done, and in the West, the average age is going up. And so how were they doing that was the question. And the research uh, came back, and um, we have been uh, thinking a little bit about it as a, as a group. So there's been six of us um, over a year uh, or so thinking through some of the issues that are raised by that. But it's actually become a vital component about, about what we do as a congregation in moving forward after COVID. And so we hope that as many people as possible in the congregation will engage in uh, the, the study time and learn a little bit more about what it is and how we uh, might do it. There are eight studies, one for each chapter of the Growing Young book. And if I'm honest, which I really should be being a minister, the first chapter is a bit dull. But it's important because it tells you how the research was done and why it was done. The rest of it, we've been talking about uh, in church um, last week and for the next few weeks. There are two ways of getting involved in it. The first is to buy a book, and if you've got your MailChimp, there were some uh, links in there as to where you might buy the book. It's, it's, uh, if you have um, Amazon Kindle Unlimited, it's free. Um, and for the rest of us, it's, uh, it's around £10. Um, if you can't afford that and want to buy one, then the church will, uh, will get one for you. So buy the book, read the book, get together with uh, some friends, and to discuss a chapter um, each week. So eight chapters, eight weeks, and uh, it's best obviously to have read it in advance if you're going to do it that way. Uh, there is a study guide that you can use with helpful questions uh, on each chapter. Each chapter is about 35 to 40 pages, um, and I reckon that'll take you between half an hour and an hour to read. Um, you can do it in less than that um, if you are a, are a particularly um, quick reader. Um, so the alternative to that is there are a set of videos which can be used. and They are designed to be used for group discussion, and each uh, of those takes 30 to 40 minutes plus an hour for discussion. So essentially what I'm asking you is that if you are concerned for the future of the congregation and for the wider church, you give us not more than a couple of hours a week for eight weeks. The changes that are necessary for growth can't happen unless the majority of people in the congregation have a basic understanding of what needs to be done and why. Existing groups could get together to work through the study, or you might need to form a new group. I uh, intend to lead two groups, one in the afternoon and one in the evening, uh, starting sometime uh, in early October. So if all else fails and, and you run out of pals, you can join my group. 
um, and we can, uh, we can work through it uh, together. I still have to confirm the dates for that, but I'll have them for, uh, for next week. And Linda is going to do our Bible reading, and then Elaine, our prayers for others. Today's reading is from the letter of 1 Timothy, and we're reading chapter 4, starting at verse 6, and reading through to verse 16. Sorry, through to verse 14. If you point these things out to brothers and sisters, you will be good ministers of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truth of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That is why we labour and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God who is the saviour of all people, and especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given to you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Thanks be to God. Our prayer this morning is shaped around some verses from Habakkuk chapter 1, where the prophet laments a calamity about to fall upon the people. And he says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and thou wilt not hear? Or cry to thee violence, and thou wilt not save? Why dost thou make me see wrongs and look upon trouble? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is slacked, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Let's pray together. Lord, sometimes, like Habakkuk, We feel overwhelmed by the way things are in the world. We cry out to you for justice, and nothing seems to change. Yesterday, we remembered the terrible event which took place 20 years ago. We call it 9-11, when destruction and violence was unleashed by wicked men, and all our lives were changed forever. Today, the situation in Afghanistan is a product of that day. Today we are still living with the consequences. The risk of terrorism is even greater than before, despite all the sacrifice made to bring to justice those who plot evil, despite all the attempts made by governments to bring about peace and security in our world, we still live in fear. We cry out to you for justice, Lord, And nothing seems to change. But perhaps it is we who need to change. We are the ones who need to ask for forgiveness, Lord. Our relationship with you is a fragile 
broken thing. We think we can live without you, or at best, park you on the sidelines while we get on with doing what is best in our own eyes. Forgive us, Lord, and help us to change. Help us to remember our utter dependence upon you. This is your world, and you want us to work with you in caring for it and in caring for one another. It won't work if we neglect you, if we leave you out of things, as we so often do. Lord, sometimes, like Habakkuk, we feel overwhelmed by the way things are in the world. We watch the news, read the reports, listen to the warnings about climate change and impending calamity that we feel helpless to reverse. We seem to be drawing closer and closer to an environmental apocalypse with drought and flooding, rising sea levels, extreme weather events happening more frequently. We watch in distress as whole communities are swept away in the chaos of floods and tornadoes. Everywhere we turn, disaster looms. We still live with COVID, ebbing and flowing and refusing to go away. Social care in crisis. The Grenfell Tower disaster, our own 9-11, still unresolved for those who live there. Fear, not justice, reigns. Lord, sometimes, like Habakkuk, we feel overwhelmed by the way things are in the world. We pray about these things, but our words are empty and lifeless because our hearts are far from you. Our thoughts and attitudes do not reflect your beauty. Forgive us, Lord. Help us to see the connection between how we live as your people and the health of the nations as you remind us often in your word. Help us to learn that faithfulness is important to you. Help us to live differently, distinctively, to be changed from the inside out, to give your Holy Spirit freedom to work in us and to surprise us by what he does when we do so. Lord, sometimes, like Habakkuk, we feel overwhelmed by the way things are in the world. Thank you that it does not need to be that way. Help us to remember that. For how could it be otherwise? It was for this world that you gave your precious Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. So, as I said, uh, over these uh, weeks, we're thinking about what causes some congregations to grow young, while other congregations are getting older, greyer, and fewer in number. There are some that are doing the opposite. They're connecting with, serving, attracting, and engaging young people and their families. Instead of aging, these churches are growing young. But young people are not flocking to them because uh, they have great music or coffee or they have a particular cool quotient. So what is it that sets these congregations apart? I think the thing is they're doing it on purpose. They are actually making decisions that result in growth. And so uh, there are six areas, and we have the wee 
uh, picture. I know you can't read it terribly well, but trust me, there are six areas there, uh, and there's two other circles. In the middle, there's Jesus-centered community, and, and that's, I think, what we are. We, we, we want to, to tell people about Jesus and to focus on Jesus. And then on the outside, you've got your context. Well, of course, we have our context. We, we are right on the meadows and, and on a main road, um, and, and we have our, our parish. We have a context into which um, we have to serve. And then around that, there are six areas. Uh, Keychain leadership, empathize with today's young people, take Jesus' message seriously, fuel a warm community, prioritize young people and families everywhere, and be the best neighbors. These congregations that are, are growing young didn't stumble on success with young people. They are making intentional decisions every day through relationships, emails, budgets, sermons, opportunities to learn and serve, and interest and involvement in the lives of their young people outside church and church meetings. They're looking to include, to love and equip young people and their families. And consequently, they keep coming back. Last week, Elaine helped us to think a little bit about how we empathize uh, with young people. And today, uh, as I said, we're thinking about keychain leadership. And I would like to add a little subheading to it, uh, which is this, sharing power with the right people at the right time. I am uh, so glad that as I was growing up, I had opportunities to, to do things in and around the church. Um, didn't grow up in the Church of Scotland. Uh, grew up in a, a brethren congregation. And uh, particularly when you were uh, male uh, there, you, you got opportunities to do things. So we had somebody who would chair the service and the preacher only did the preaching, might occasionally do the reading, but the chairperson did the rest. So you got an opportunity to do that, to be up front and to say, now we're going to sing hymn number whatever and do that kind of stuff. But it got you used to being in front of people. And it gave you that opportunity to use the talents and abilities that you've been given to serve in church. And for me, that was really important. All of us, no matter whether our roles in the church are paid or voluntary, all of us, to some degree or another, have authority and responsibility. That responsibility and authority is like the set of, of keys. We entrust it to other people. It has a profound effect when we do that, and it helps them to grow uh, in their uh, maturity and walk with God. Here's a quote from the book. It's from page 55. It says, no matter what your role here is what you want to know. If you are willing to entrust your keys to young people, they will trust you with their hearts, their energy, their creativity, and even their friends. If you give them your access, you have the opportunity to touch a whole generation. That whole generation for us is not in church. And not just here. The Church of Scotland, when you look at the demographics when you hit 40, it's like falling off the edge of a cliff. You know, we have people in their 90s and their 80s and their 70s and their 60s and their 50s, and then 40 just goes boom. Because there's hardly any in that group. And that's the age group that we're talking about. This um, 
the book, the research describes four types of leaders that you find in churches. The first one is keyless leaders. Often children and young people are asked to help and volunteer uh, in a work, but they're never actually given any responsibility or authority. They don't get to make decisions. They don't get to voice opinions. So we need to think of other people in our congregation, young or old, that are doing jobs, but in reality don't have a say in how it's done. Second, they're key hoarding leaders. These are the superheroes, the ones who can do everything themselves. You know, they rip the shirt open and it's got, I can do it all. I'm very sad to say that I have colleagues in ministry who won't even allow somebody else to do the reading. How do you expect to develop and encourage and stimulate growth in people when you do it all and keep it all to yourself? Key loaning leaders is the third group. You give somebody a wee shot and then take it back almost as soon as you can because you're scared of what they'll do with it. It's much easier to do it all yourself. Do you know? You don't have to plan and prepare and talk to other people and organize it. It's much easier to do it yourself. But it's not nearly so rewarding. It's not nearly so good for the health of a congregation. The last lot are key chain leaders. They're aware of the, the keys that they have and they allow other people and they encourage other people to take responsibility and to walk with them as they do it. To take the flack when it goes wrong. Because it will go wrong. I mean, I think of some of the things I've said and done over the years and, and I, yeah, it just makes me cringe. You know what I think? Gosh, those people were, were so good to me uh, because they, they, they just accepted that I was learning. Um, but, jings, I think, you know, how have I, I ever got away with it? I have no idea. But, but we need that level of trust and that level of support and encouragement to, to help other people to grow. And that's obviously the goal of a congregation, to grow and to develop people of all ages. But the research shows that when you focus on young people, everybody benefits. So we want to recognize the gifts and skills and train up and pass on authority to our younger people in particular. So these keychain leaders, you must think they are just superhuman individuals. They're just gifted in every way. Well, the reality is, of course, nobody is really like that. And so what are the kind of things that makes them stand out? Well, the first is that they are mature. They're not always young people. You know, quite often what happens in church or what happened in church before COVID <laughs> was that young people would get to a certain age and then in order to keep them, you would ask them to be a, a leader in the Bible class or the Sunday school or, or whatever and you would get them, you know, and you would keep them that way and you would do things to, to try and, and encourage them uh, in that way. And that's good. Let's do what we can to keep uh, young people and that, that, that's, that's fine. But actually... The research shows that younger people respond to folk who have a maturity about them, who have life experience, who have knowledge and wisdom that they can pass on. So yeah, they like being with somebody who's just a few years older than them, but they really benefit from people who are older. 
And so quite often what happens is people would, would get to a particular age and then they go, oh, I'm too old for young folk. But the research shows that that is not the case. Young people need big brothers and sisters. They need surrogate parents. They need surrogate grannies and grandpas and great grannies and great grandpas. They need people to share their knowledge and wisdom and experience and their love of God with them. Keychain leaders are mature, but they're also real. If you want to invest in our younger people, you don't have to dress cool or talk cool. That's missing the point entirely. What younger people are looking for is authenticity. They want you to be real. They want you to acknowledge that sometimes you get it wrong. That quite often you get it wrong. That that you don't have all the answers. That everything is not clear cut and worked out. That actually there are struggles in life. They want you to be authentic. They want you to be real. One of the quotes from the book says, when surveying young people who valued their leaders in these churches who were growing young, 87% talked about authenticity as the most valued characteristic. So they value leaders who share how they feel and that they don't always get it right. Because that means that people can come into your congregation not feeling they have to be perfect, not feeling they have to have everything sorted, knowing that they're amongst other broken people, but they're loved and accepted. Keychain leaders are warm. They're not uh, distant. The young people are not looking for somebody who's acting like a CEO or a business professional. They, they respond to somebody who genuinely cares for them. And then they know what matters to people. Sometimes in ministry, what happens is you spend a lot of your time with other ministers. And what bothers us is not necessarily what bothers anybody else. And so you can, you can get a false impression of what you should be talking about. You know, we don't need to be reading the next uh, theology book or commentary. But we do need to know what it is that's on the hearts and the minds of folk in our congregations and in our community. Keylane, uh, Keylane, they trust and empower other people. They allow them to take responsibility. They give them opportunities to serve. It's hard when you're the best greeter or the best small group leader or you're experienced in leading worship or you're dynamic with your children's talks. When you know that you've got lots of experience and you know how to do it and do it well, it's hard to hand over to somebody who's just learning. But it's really important. Young people want to be given those opportunities so they learn and grow and can make a difference. Keychain leaders take the long view. It's far less work to do everything yourself, as I said. And it can be really hard to watch someone struggle with something that you know you can do really well. Of course, 
if you happen to be the, the main leader or the minister, you know that you're going to get it in the neck from the folk who are unhappy because it's not you doing it or because the person who is doing it didn't do it properly. In the long run, however, it's so important to bring other people on. Will they always turn up on time? No. Will they always be properly prepared? No. But if you give them the chance, if you talk it through with them, if you support and encourage them, then they will surprise you by how creative and effective they can be. What would it be like if we gave children and young people genuine leadership responsibility in the church and trusted them to do things their way? What would it be like if children and young people in the church knew that we believed in them and that if they had an interest or a gifting, we were prepared to help them to get the proper training to accommodate their mistakes and their mess because we believed that God was with them and God has a plan and a purpose for them. I may be wrong, but I suspect that we are a, a church that likes things done quite professionally and in much grammatically and politically correct fine detail. Well, I think we have to give up on that idea if we're going to raise up and invest in the next generation. You might be the best in your particular role today, but what are you doing to make sure that the next generation is filling that role in their way tomorrow? The next generation of Christians don't need us to be cool or funky or any of that stuff. They don't need us to be dressing in skinny jeans or have pierced noses. What they need is for us older people to look for their giftings, to model real and authentic faith to them, to love them genuinely and to pass on responsibilities and authority that we hold in our hands. And every one of us can do that. That's what Paul was doing with Timothy. Paul had been with him and, and with his family. And when he came to faith, it was Paul who laid hands on him and blessed him. It was Paul who encouraged him. So here's this guy, Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament that we know was a gifted evangelist. He was a gifted preacher. He was a gifted apologist. He, he could argue with, with all sorts of people. He was good at most things. And he could have done it all himself, but he took Timothy, who was just a youngster, and he encouraged them. And he sent them to Ephesus, where they were having problems. And he gave them this letter, and then he sent another one to say, Timothy, take this with you, and here's what you're to teach them, and I just want you to know that I am with you. I have your back. I support you, and I encourage you. And he says to fan into flame the gift of God that was given to you when I laid hands on you, and the elders laid hands on you. You see, there was a team behind them as well. He had support and encouragement, and Timothy went on to lead that congregation. A young man put into a place that was hard. But he knew, he knew that he had support. He had been taught and trained. Did he get everything right? No, none of us get everything right. But he was able to do it 
because people trusted in him. Most of us have somebody that we can look back to, maybe more than one. When I look back, I think of the Wileys. A couple in our congregation, Jim was an elder, and we used to plague them, myself and my best friend, and we used to turn up all hours of the day and night and, and just ask them questions and get toasted cheese with pineapple on it. You know, but, but they had time for us. And they encouraged us. And then when we got married, we went to, uh, to live in Lewis. And Anne and Ralph Briggs were our surrogate parents. And they looked out for us. And they encouraged us and they got us opportunities to serve. And when we got it wrong, they said, well, that was stupid, wasn't it? But, but let's talk about it and let's work out how we do it next time. And let's work out how we change that. And they helped us and they encouraged us and they walked with us. And before we left Lewis, we had a little group of students that we met with to get them ready to go to university. Because what was good for us was good for other people. And that's what we need to do. This week, will you take 15 minutes at some point just to consider what keys, what responsibilities and authority you have in the life of the church? And you might be sitting there thinking, well, I don't have any. No, you might not have much, but you've got some. And you've certainly got experience that you can share. Ask yourself, do you recognize somebody younger than you that you could start taking an interest in? That you could begin to walk with to encourage them, to empower them, to enable them to live for Jesus? That's what we're asked to do. And the research says that if we get that together, we might grow young. Amen. We're going to sing our last hymn together. And it's, it's just a hymn that reminds us that, you know, we love because we were loved. We love because God is love and we choose to serve him. Him is love divine.
Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be together. As we go from here, we ask that you would go with us to help us to love and to serve you, to encourage other people, to find those that we can empower and enable and strengthen and walk with so that they can serve you as well. And now may the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Spirit go with you and those whom you love now and always. Amen.